Great to see you this morning. Glad to see you guys still coming in there. That's great. Very good. We're going to be in Mark chapter 6 again today. We're going to be finishing up Mark chapter 6. Let me ask you a question as we begin this morning. How do you view Jesus Christ? What is He to you? How much do you know about Him? How often do you think about Him? What is your relationship to Him? Uh, What are your expectations from Him? All of these are very critical questions. And the way that you answer those questions will determine the direction of your life in the here and now. And your answers will determine also where you spend eternity. Will you spend eternity in the blessed presence of the Lord Jesus forever or in suffering separation from Him forever? And as we continue our study in the Gospel of Mark, as I say, finishing chapter 6 today, we see kind of see those questions jumping off the pages of Scripture at us. Who is Jesus Christ? What is He to you? What are your expectations of Him? What is your relationship to Him? We'll be reading this passage in just a moment. If you need a Bible, there should be one on the, on the row there with you if you'd like to follow along with us. But the, the entire presentation of the gospel message in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is is bringing us face-to-face with those questions and the right answers to those questions. The entire message of the gospels is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is equal with God the Father. He is sent by the Father into this world to redeem sinful human beings, to die for our sin, and to purchase our eternal salvation. So Mark begins his gospel way back that we looked at weeks ago in in chapter 1. He calls it the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then he has, for the last six chapters, proven beyond a doubt that Jesus Christ is exactly who he says he is. So we are presented with the question, what will you do with Jesus? That's what Mark is driving out throughout his entire gospel. What will you do with Jesus? If he is who he says he is, and he is then you can't just ignore Him. That would be ridiculously foolish. You have have to accept Him or you have to reject Him. As the famous writer C.S. Lewis once wrote, Jesus is is either the greatest liar the world has ever seen, or He is an absolute lunatic who thinks He's God, or He is indeed the Lord of Heaven. You can only treat Him as a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. All of this nonsense about Jesus being a nice moral teacher who did good deeds to everyone is not really an option because Jesus did not give us that option. You either have to accept Him for who He is and bow in a submission and plead for forgiveness or else you have to reject His claims on your life and go live for yourself and die bearing the guilt of your own sin. Those are our only options. You either accept Him or you reject Him. So the gospel message presents us with this ultimate question, what will we do with Jesus? Now let's read our text this morning, Mark chapter 6. We're going to start today in verse 45, and we're going to go to the end of the chapter. Mark chapter 6, verse 45, and then we go to the end of the chapter. So Mark 6, 45, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida while he sent the multitude away. And when he had sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray. Now when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, 
and he was alone on the land. And then he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. Now about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea and would have passed them by, I mean come alongside them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were troubled. When you look at what those Greek terms mean, those are kind of understatements. They basically screamed bloody murder is what they did. They cried out. They saw him and were troubled. But immediately he talked with them and said to them, Be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. Then he went up into the boat to them, and the wind ceased. And they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled, for they had not understood about the loaves, because their heart was hardened. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and, and anchored there. And when the people, or when they came out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him, ran through that whole surrounding region, and began to carry about on beds those who were sick to wherever they heard he was. Wherever he entered into villages, cities, or the country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might just touch the hem of his garment, and as many as touched him were made well. Last week we saw quite possibly the greatest miracle that Jesus ever did outside of his own resurrection. Of course, if you were the person who was sick or crippled or blind and paralyzed, then the greatest miracle was the one Jesus had done for you. If you were the dead person Jesus raised from the dead, then in your mind his greatest miracle was for you. And there are many occasions where hundreds or even thousands of people saw the miracles that Jesus performed on behalf of an individual person. And in most of Jesus' miracles, the crowds were simply observers. But in our miracle last week, more people participated than in any of Jesus' other miracles. That's probably one reason why this miracle appears in all four Gospels. The only, the only miracle, as we mentioned last week, besides the resurrection, that appears in all four Gospels. And Jesus fed approximately, or quite possibly, 20,000 people with a little boy's sack lunch, literally creating food on the spot out of nothing. It was an incredible display of God's creative power, and his omniscience and his precision creating exactly enough food uh, to completely fill and satisfy 20,000 people with exactly the precise amount of leftovers to feed his 12 apostles. It was mind-blowing proof that he is indeed God. Thank you folks for coming in. We're in Mark chapter 6, the Gospel of Mark chapter 6. Maybe they'll help you on the back there. If there's a, if there's a Bible, you need one. Glad, glad for you to follow along with us. Just read our passage in Mark chapter 6. And this, and this miracle that we talked about last week, it, it kind of brought the demonstration of God's power to a, to a climax, to a, to a pinnacle of the revelation of who He was on this massive scale in front of 20,000 people. And it also basically brought His ministry in Galilee to a close. Jesus had been operating in the region of Galilee for about two years now. He had purposely stayed out of Judea and Jerusalem, except for a few visits. That's where the religious elite were located, where the religious powers that be were centered. And Jesus Christ did not come to this earth to reform uh, apostate Judaism. He was not coming to reform the rituals of the Old Testament law of Moses. He was coming to fulfill the law. 
Jesus Himself said in Matthew 5.17, He said, I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. Jesus was not coming to reform the twisted version, the, 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 uh, the corrupted version of the Old Testament law that the religious leaders of His day were practicing. He came to fulfill all that the law pictured. He came to complete all that the law pointed toward. So although he had already infuriated the local Pharisees to the point that they were already plotting some way to kill him, he was not going to show up in Jerusalem just yet to confront the religious leaders and try to make them reform their corrupted practices. He is fulfilling all that the Old Testament pointed toward. Bible students have cataloged about 300 specific Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah that Jesus Christ fulfilled. If you were to go to a Bible college somewhere and take a course on the life of Christ, you would learn that, that Bible students divide this three to three and a half year ministry of Jesus into three parts. The first year they call it the year of obscurity. He wasn't very well known. The second year they call it the year of popularity. And then the third year, the year of opposition, which of course ended in the crucifixion. The first year of Jesus' ministry, he was becoming well known, but it took many months. No newspapers or any type of mass media, so everything became known through word of mouth, as we call it. Jesus was calling his apostles, he was teaching in the synagogues, he was traveling around performing some miracles, all basically in the region of Galilee. And by the second year, he was, as we've discussed in the last few weeks, as we've read here in the Gospel of Mark in our study, he was becoming so incredibly popular that he and his apostles were being mobbed by crowds every day. The, the enthusiasm for Jesus reaches this, this fevered pitch after the miracle of the feeding of this massive crowd we looked at last week. That this was right at the end of his year of popularity. And John says that after he had done the miracle, the people wanted to take him and make him a king. In fact, they were ready to start a revolt. They were ready to start a revolution against Rome. They're, they're, they're saying to themselves, Jesus can do anything. Jesus can be our leader. But Jesus, he had no intention of becoming the leader of a revolution against Rome. He had not come for war. He had come to die as a sacrifice for our sin. Now the second time that Jesus comes, if we believe is not too far away, the second coming of Christ, He's coming for war. The next time He comes, He's coming as the judge of all the earth. The next time He comes in glory, He will come as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And He's going to annihilate the armies of the Antichrist at the battle of Armageddon. And He's going to establish His earthly kingdom of righteousness on this earth for a thousand years. He came the first time to die as a sacrifice for our sin. And He will come the second time for a, for a righteous war against sin and rebellion. And we believe that may be soon. But Jesus, in His first coming, He had no political agenda. He would be a king, no doubt. But He would be a spiritual king in the hearts of those who put their faith in Him. One day He will be the King of the world, and He will reign for a thousand years on this earth, as Revelation 20 tells us. And at that time, He's going to fulfill all of the earthly kingdom promises He's given to Israel, given to David and Abraham, and all the covenants, and restated in the New Testament. He's going to reign over the whole earth. But this time, this first time of His coming that we read about in the Gospels, His kingdom is not a literal earthly kingdom, it is a spiritual kingdom. 
But the massive crowds who were following Jesus, they only wanted physical things. There was no true worship, no heart repentance, no willingness to abandon a corrupted religion or their own sense of self-righteousness. They wanted their religion. They wanted their own self-righteousness. They just wanted the things that Jesus could give them, like many people who seek Jesus today. And in John's Gospel, the day after the miracle, we talked about it briefly last week. I want to show you a passage there in just a second. But in John's Gospel, the day after the miracle, when the people showed up for a free breakfast, Jesus preaches what we often call the bread of life sermon. And he says to them in that sermon, I did not come to feed your bodies. I came to be the bread for your souls. And if you eat this bread that I'm giving you, this bread for your soul, you'll never be hungry. He said, I came to satisfy the hunger of your soul, not just the hunger of an empty stomach. I came to give you eternal life. And as we mentioned last week, many of his disciples left him after that. You see, they, they, they weren't interested in a spiritual kingdom that, could, that might involve persecution or hardship. If Jesus wouldn't lead them in an overthrow of Rome, then just forget it. And unfortunately, there are many people like that today. Many people look at the Lord Jesus Christ as kind of their, their, their fix-it solution. And if Jesus doesn't improve my financial circumstances, or if He doesn't resolve my relationship issues, or if He doesn't turn out to be my magic pill to fix my life, then just, just forget it. Because I don't want to have to change anything. I don't want to have to, uh, uh, to, to change my lifestyle. I don't want to have to change my choices. I don't want to have to readjust my values and my priorities. I just want to continue feeding all my own cravings and all my own desires and all my own habits. And I just want Jesus to fix my circumstances so I can enjoy my sinful self better without any hassles. That's the way many people look to, look to the Lord Jesus. So when Jesus says to his people and as he's preaching here, die to this life and all of its empty promises and live for me, and live for eternity, it's hard now, but it gets easier later, it hurts now, but it blesses later, then many folks say, no way, man, that's, that, that's just too hard. It's a lot easier to live for the here and now. And if it destroys me later, then, oh well, at least I tried. But they're lying to themselves because they never really tried, they just caved. But I want you to understand something very interesting about the Twelve Apostles. They had the same kingdom expectations as the rest of the crowd. They were expecting an earthly kingdom right now at Jesus' first coming. And if you were to read through the Gospels, you would see that on several occasions. They spoke about being the greatest in the kingdom and sitting next to Jesus on thrones when he ruled the world and so forth. You see, most readers of the Old Testament, uh, the Old Testament prophets, say they missed the teachings that said that the Messiah would suffer first and then rule and reign in glory later. And when Jesus spoke of his death and resurrection, they totally missed it. Peter even argued with Jesus. Some of you remember that story. Peter, Peter even argued with Jesus on one occasion. Jesus was talking about going to Jerusalem and dying. And Peter kind of grabs him, no, Lord, you, can, you, you, you can't die. No way. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You don't even begin to get what's going on here. But the disciples still had that same kingdom expectation. They wanted the earthly kingdom now. They didn't realize that, that suffering came before glory and that the Messiah came to die for our sin and then would later receive his kingdom. 
Even after the resurrection, Jesus has died on the cross. He's resurrected from the dead. He's been on earth in his resurrection body, teaching his disciples for 40 days. And now he's about to ascend back up into heaven. And when you read that story in Acts chapter 1, his disciples ask him again, ask him again Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? And Jesus had to say, it's not for you to know when that's going to happen. But it's not now. So I want you to go into all the world and be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. But when so many disciples leave, and Jesus says to the twelve, will you also go away? I want to show you that. We talked about it last week. I want to show that passage to you. John chapter 6. We'll be back to Mark 6 in just a moment. So turn over to John, the Gospel of John chapter 6. I want you to see those words. We won't read the whole story. It's a long, long, long chapter. 70, 71 verses in this, in this chapter. Look down near the end of the chapter. Jesus has preached His bread of life sermon. He has told those crowds that I didn't come here to feed you. I didn't just come to, 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 to fill your stomach. I came to give you the bread of life. And the bread of life is Me. And He said, if you will eat of the bread of life, Me... Then he said, you'll never be hungry. I can fill up the hole in your soul. I can fill up that hunger in your soul. I can do that. That's why I came. I'm telling you spiritual words. All this stuff, all this food that I've been that i been feeding you, it profits nothing. You're going to get hungry again in a few hours. But I can give you something that will give you peace and contentment and joy for your entire life and all the way into eternity. I am the bread of life. And verse 66, way down the end of the chapter, John 6, verse 66. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. They said, what? You mean you're not just going to give me everything I want? You mean you're not going to feed me? You're not going to heal everything all the time? You're not just going to fix all my problems? I mean, this is some spiritual thing you're talking about? Forget it. I want all, I want all the good stuff now. So many of his, his disciples left. They went back and they walked with him no more. This is a total rejection of the message of Jesus Christ. Then Jesus turns to the twelve, verse 67, says to the twelve, his twelve apostles, Do you also want to go away? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of God of the living God. That's the climax of all. See, God had done a work in the hearts of the apostles. And while all of the other so-called disciples were disappointed in the words of eternal life that Jesus spoke, the twelve believed those words. They embraced those words. And this is where they begin to understand that Jesus' entire ministry was about eternal life, not earthly life in the here and now. So, so this is kind of a, a monumental moment. This is a huge shift in even the, the, the thinking of the disciples. What, what convinced them? Why don't they just disappear with the rest of the crowd? Why are they still following Jesus? Now you might be tempted to say, well, it was the miraculous feeding of 20,000 people. I mean, how in the world could you miss that display of God's power? But verse 52 of Mark 6 says, no, look back at Mark chapter 6. When Jesus comes to them walking on the water, 
It says they were amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled. Look at verse 52. For they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. The Gospel of Mark records, and Peter giving Mark all this information, even though the, the, the apostles stood there and watched Jesus literally create food for 20,000 people with enough leftovers to feed them, even though they stood there and watched that, Mark says, in fact, Peter, I'm sure, is telling Mark what to write here. They didn't understand about the love. It hadn't quite hit them yet who Jesus really was. But that story that we read in, in John chapter 6, just a minute ago, that happens the next day. The next day is in the evening is when Peter says those words. So what happened between the walking on the water, I mean, what happened between the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on the water and this story we read in John, in 24 hours, all of a sudden, bang, they start to connect the dots. Now, we might find it hard to believe that you could watch somebody create food out of nothing for 20,000 people and still miss it, but, but they did. And Peter's grand confession that we just read comes 24 hours later. So what made the difference? What happened in that 24 hours? Well, what made the difference is what happened in the middle of the night that we just read. So I want to go through it again, and I want to highlight just briefly with you the Lord Jesus Christ. We see three wonderful things about the Lord Jesus Christ in this passage of Scripture. We're going to take a look at again, the one we just read in Mark 6. First is our Savior's communication with the Father. Then secondly, our Savior's concern for the disciples. And then thirdly, our Savior's compassion for the crowds. You see, after the crowd gets stuffed with food, we see in verse 45, right after he feeds the, we call it the feeding of the 5,000, 5,000 men, probably 20,000 people there. The crowd gets stuffed with food, Jesus sends them away, he commands the twelve apostles to sail back toward Bethsaida. Remember we saw in, from the Gospel of Luke last week, they were, they were in a deserted area, an unpopulated area that belonged to Bethsaida, so not very far from town. And now Jesus says, sail back toward that little town, probably only about two miles or less. Shouldn't take long. Push out from shore, get out of the shallows, row and sail back to town. And I want you to notice something. This is just a, a short rabbit trail. I won't spend a lot of time on this. But notice in verse 45, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him. Every time throughout the Gospel of Mark, when the disciples get into a boat, it's always the definite article. It's not a boat. It's always the boat. You say, why? Well, we can only guess that probably it's, it's a boat that belongs to Peter and Andrew. It's one of their fishing boats that they designated for ministry because, of course, they're not currently fishing. They're following Jesus. It was big enough to carry everyone. And so Peter and Andrew, maybe James and John, but James and John worked for their father who still had their fishing business. So we guess it was probably a boat that belonged to Peter and Andrew. But, but, but they always talk about the boat. It must have been some specific boat that they used for ministry when they crossed the Sea of Galilee, various places there. And so they get into the boat, and Jesus says, I'm going up into a mountain to pray, I'm sending the crowds away, you guys sail back to Bethsaida, it should be maybe an hour in the boat, technically. If everything goes normally, it should maybe be an hour in the boat. 
Jesus goes into the mountain to pray. Of course, we see Jesus praying all the time in all sorts of situations. You know, there's at least 25 times in the Gospels where it speaks of Jesus praying. Sometimes we have record of what he said. Other times we have no record of what he actually prayed. Here in this passage, it doesn't tell us what he prayed. But you know, the times that you see Jesus praying, he's always communicating with God the Father. And when we have record of what he says, it's all about his disciples and his work that God sent him to do. That's what he always seems to be praying about. He's praying for people, he's praying for his disciples, he's praying for the work that God sent him to do. Always this outward focus in Jesus' prayers. Help me to do your will. I I submit to your will, Father. I pray for my disciples. We don't have his words here, but we know from the rest of the Gospels what he's doing. And I just want to challenge you with that thought. You know, most of the time when we pray, you know what we pray about? We pray about us. Lord, help me do this. Lord, help me do this. Lord, fix this problem of mine. Well, so many of our prayers are kind of self-focused. Yet when you see Jesus praying, His prayers are always outward-focused. It's always about other people. It's always about the disciples. It's always about what God wants Him to do, what God wants Him to be. And although we don't have His words here, we know from the rest of the Gospel we can be sure what He's doing. Now, I want to end with the situation with the disciples and the walking on water. So let's look to the end of the chapter for just a second. As we see, they, when they finally cross over and they get there, the people recognize Him. They start running from the whole countryside, just like they've been doing for weeks and weeks and weeks. Bring people who are sick to wherever He was, villages, cities, or the country. They laid the sick in the marketplaces. They just begged that he could walk by and they could touch the hem of his garment as he went past. And it says at the end of the very last sentence, as many as touched him were made well. You know, despite the astounding unbelief of the crowds, remember we talked about that last week, Jesus literally creates food for 20,000 people right in front of them and they still don't accept him as the Son of God. Astounding unbelief. They show up the next morning looking for a free breakfast. And Jesus says to them, you didn't come because of my teaching. You just came because I fed you. And so even after Jesus has rebuked them for their unbelief, everybody is still getting healed. Nobody's being turned away. They're even just trying to touch the tassels at the bottom of his robe. That sound familiar if you've been with us for our studies in, <laughs> studies in Mark? I guess that story got around, huh? You remember the story from a few, of a few chapters ago, the woman who had that, that, that non-stop blood flow. That was just in Capernaum, just a few miles away. And, and so now everybody's trying to do that. Lord, if you don't actually want to touch me in some way or pray for me in some way, just let me touch the hem of your garment as you walk by. And Jesus is allowing it to happen. In in spite of all of the unbelief of all the people, Jesus Christ is still showing compassion for them. You know, there's something that theologians often call common grace. And what we mean by common grace, it means that, that God's grace even helps unbelievers. God's graciousness often blesses people who do not believe in Him. God gives special blessings to those who know Him, but He often blesses those who don't know Him. 
Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, He says, the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. The sun shines on everybody's crops. You can have one guy with a farm right here, and he's reading his Bible, and he's praying, and he's devoted to Christ, and he loves the Lord, and he's praying God will send rain, God sends rain, and it also, and, and not only pours rain on him, it pours rain on his neighbor who curses God and, 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 and gripes about God every single day. God still lets it rain on his place too. That's called common grace. And that's what we see here. They, they have the, the God's kindness to His entire creation, whether they believe in Him or not. These folks in this passage, they have, they have rejected the message of Jesus. They have rejected His kingdom message of repentance from sin. They have rejected Him as being the Son of God. They are only following Him around to get what they can get from Him. And He has rebuked them for their unbelief, yet He is still healing and helping everyone who comes. Common grace. Now don't mistake common grace for saving grace. Two different things. Common grace is what God may do for everyone. Saving grace is when He brings you to the Lord Jesus Christ and you come to know Him as your Savior. Just because God helps you does not automatically mean that you belong to Him. It may just be common grace. So we come back to this question again. What will you do with Jesus? What have you done with Jesus? Is, is it, that is still the question for us. To make sure that we are truly in Christ. But common grace is a blessed thing in this life for all the world. In fact, the reason why the sun came up today. And the reason why rain is going to come probably this week. And the reason why God doesn't just poof, blow this whole world all, all to pieces and kill everybody. It's because of His grace. So common grace is a blessed thing in this life for all the world. But don't mistake that for saving grace. Make sure that you are in Christ. But then let's look at Jesus' concern for His disciples. In the providence of God, a strong wind came up on the Sea of Galilee, which is not uncommon. It was blowing the boat away from land. Remember, he said, go to Bethsaida. They were in this deserted wilderness area just outside Bethsaida. They are probably just a couple miles away. Should have been an easy hour, hour and a half rowing. It shouldn't be a little long at all. But, but now the wind comes up, and this little two-mile boat ride has turned into an all-night struggle. In verse 47, it says, when the evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea. What's it doing in the middle of the sea? Because the wind blew them out there. They were rowing as hard as they could row, and they couldn't get to the place Jesus told them to go. Because the wind was against them, and it was blowing them. And it said that he was, he was alone on the land. Then he saw them straining at rowing, verse 48. He was straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. And so here, all, all night... They've been rowing and rowing, trying to get to this one little short boat ride, and the wind keeps blowing them out further offshore. And it says, about the fourth watch of the night. Now, if you understand Jewish timekeeping, the daytime started at 6 a.m. and it went to 6 p.m. Nighttime started at 6 p.m. and went to 6 a.m. And it was divided into three-hour segments. First watch, second watch, third watch, fourth watch. So the fourth watch of the night is sometime between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. 
the darkest time of the night, the last part, of the, the last part of the night before you begin to see sunrise, and in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus is walking out to them on the water, and they look up. Of course, they they see him. In fact, before I even get that far, let me ask you that: You ever been in, in that place like the disciples, rowing as hard as you can and not getting where you want to go? Rowing hard and getting blown further away from where you want to be? That's, a, that's the disciples' dilemma. But Jesus saw them, and He came to them, and He spoke to them, and He rescued them. And that's, the, that's a sentence I want you to remember when you think of struggling, 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 struggling. Jesus sees you, and He will come to you, and He will speak to you, and He will rescue you. Of course, in the process, with the disciples, he scared the daylights out of them. I mean, what would you do? You're struggling all night. You've been in this boat fighting the wind for seven or eight hours. You're windblown. You're wet. You're rowing. You're bailing water. You're, ex- you're, you're absolutely exhausted. And at four o'clock in the morning, suddenly you look up and you see someone walking toward you on the water. His robes are blowing in the wind and you're blinking your eyes. What are you going to do? Same thing the disciples did. Ah! Is anybody kind of just walking across the lake towards you? Of course they thought it was a ghost. Jesus immediately speaks to them and he calms their panic. He says, relax, fellows, it's me. He climbs into the boat, the wind stops. Now remember, Mark is the spiritual son of Peter. We can only presume he got his information from this gospel from Peter, who was an eyewitness to these things. So Mark, in the kindness of his heart toward his spiritual father, directed by the Holy Spirit, he leaves out the part of the story about Peter climbing out of the boat and sinking. That's the part we usually focus on. Peter got out of the boat, you know, bid me to come to you, Lord, if it's really you. Jesus says, come. Peter gets out of the boat. He starts walking on the water like Jesus was. And then he looks around and he sees the waves and ah, and he has a panic attack and he starts sinking. Jesus comes out and pulls him out. That's the part we like, we like to focus on. Mark, Mark leaves it out. But we want to focus on what Jesus did for all of them. And it should be a great encouragement to us. If you feel like you are struggling against the flow, and everything is just coming at you, coming at you, coming at you, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, He sees you. And in His time, He will come to you, and He will speak to you, and He will rescue you. That is the hope that we all have in our hearts. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you think God doesn't see you struggling? One of our grandsons was having some struggles with a few issues in his life, and his, his, his mother told him, you know, it's struggling against the sin that's within us. It's kind of like swimming upstream. And he looked at her and said, oh, Mom, struggling against my sin nature is a whole lot harder than swimming upstream. And he's right. Hey, we have a hard time struggling against our sin nature. You think God doesn't see you struggling? Of course He does. Jesus is way up on a mountain. These guys are in the middle of the lake and it says He sees them. And He starts coming to them. And when they have their panic attack, He immediately speaks to them. And He rescues them. He sets one foot in the boat and the wind stops. 
And look at what the disciples said, or, or, or what they did. Verse 50, 51, He went up into the boat to them, and the wind ceased, and they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled. You know what that means? It means that they were in a, that they were absolutely awestruck. They were in a state of shock. That they realize now, now they get it. They didn't get it when Jesus created the, you know, all that food for 20,000 people. They didn't connect the dots. But after this story, after this event, when Jesus literally walks on water, steps into the boat and the wind stops, now they connect the dots. Jesus is not just a man sent from God. He is God in the flesh. He has not only demonstrated His power over disease and demons and death, He has not only commanded the forces of nature when He stopped, when he stopped the storm a couple chapters ago, He has now, literally before their eyes, defied the laws of nature. He's God. So when Peter says later that day, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Remember, it's later this day. It's 4 o'clock in the morning. That next eve, that, that evening of that day, Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have come to believe and know. We have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We know they got it. That night, they went from fear to faith. That night, they went from confusion to confession. That night, they went from wondering to worshiping. And I ask you again, what is Jesus Christ to you? Who is Jesus Christ to you? What have you done with Jesus Christ? Have you come to believe and know that He is the Savior, the Son of the living God? I pray that you will if you have not. And if you do know Christ as your Savior, I pray this will encourage your heart to stand for Him. If you are struggling today, if you have been struggling for weeks or months or years, you know what? If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, God sees you. And God is coming toward you. And God is going to speak to you and you need to be listening to His Word as He speaks to you. And He will rescue you, but you have got to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. You have got to bow the knee to Jesus Christ and tell Him you will do what He wants you to do. You will be what He wants you to be. And if you will do that, He will rescue you. And He can, just like He did the disciples. And 12 hours later, Peter says, Lord, now, okay, we have connected the dots. Now we know who you are. And we have come to believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You know, years later, every single one of those guys in, those, in this boat, every single one of them, except for John, every single one of them died a violent death because of their faith in Christ. They were crucified. They were beaten to death with clubs. They were thrown off cliffs. They were burned alive. And they went to their deaths rejoicing because they knew who they had believed. They knew Jesus was the truth. They knew He was the life. And they would never go back on it. They would never recant. They would never turn their back. And I wonder in some of those circumstances if they remembered this night. Hey, remember that night, fellows, when Jesus came to us on the water and we finally connected the dots and realized who He really is? Yeah, 
I know where I'm going. I know heaven is real. I know Jesus is alive. I know what He says is true. So I ask you, who is Jesus Christ to you? What have you done with Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Lord, this is such a, in many ways, a well-known story. Jesus walking on the water. And yet we often don't really understand the backstory. We don't understand what makes it so powerful. It was the night, the very night at this event, when the disciples who knew Jesus had power, they knew he was from, he knew he was from God, they knew he had the power of God on him, but they finally connected the dots as to who Jesus really was. And it changed their lives forever. I pray, Father, for everyone here today. I do not know anyone's heart. I don't know what, they're, what they've been thinking about. I don't know what, what their life has been the last few weeks or months. I, I, I don't know any of those details. But, Lord, you know all of it. Because you see us when we are struggling. And you come to us. And you are speaking to us. And you can rescue us if we will submit to you bow the knee before you and do what you tell us to do. So Lord, I pray for my friends here today. We're just thankful for your grace and goodness to us. May we, Lord, be certain in our own hearts that we have put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the true and living God, the only Savior, the only way. As Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God the Father except through me. We ask you to help us, Lord, in all these areas, and we pray this in the powerful and holy name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.